Good morning. This is Michelle with the Adventures of Living, and I am going to be recording this podcast about public schools. I've been doing some research, and gosh, you could make a whole podcast show just about public schools, and maybe there already is one. So today on episode 21, sit down with me, grab a cup of coffee, make some tea, and listen to information about public schools. I have some brief history. I talk a little bit of politics, um, a little bit about curriculum and our rankings. So welcome to the Adventures of Living. Oh, but first, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Anchor. Welcome back. This is Michelle with the Adventures of Living, and this is episode number 21. Is it public school or government school? So we have that age-old question about our public schools, what they're doing, where they're going. And so I've been curious because my daughter, she's in the public school system now for her second year. And I myself am actually going to school. I'm six classes away from my paraeducator degree. So don't get me wrong. I like the concept of public schools, Um, maybe an older concept, not our current concept. I like teachers. Um, Our public school right now, we're in remote learning and um, they're giving out free lunches to everybody, regardless of income. So public schools, they're great for socialization um, and Maybe as an adult, maybe you can remember one or more of your favorite teachers. They left an impact on your life. My issue with public schools is how much the government is um, getting their skin in the game, so to speak. So I'm going to give you some history and we'll go over a few things. And um, I'm probably going to leave a bunch of stuff out. You might not hear everything that you think you would hear about public schools, but I'm going to try to touch on a little bit of everything. So basically, in our American history beginning, um, schools did start in our 13 colonies in the 17th century, the, the idea of public schools. The Boston Latin School was established in 1635, and it's the oldest public school in the United States. It was based on a model by Mr. John Cotton, and he was a clergyman from England. And his theology was learning to be flexible, sensible, and practical while dealing with political realities of being a nonconformist. And he learned the art of disagreeing while maintaining the appearance of a conformity. So that's kind of a cool skill, right? It's kind of like debating. Um, The Boston Latin High School is still a public school. It's currently a high school right now, so it's still um, in use. I have no idea if they're doing remote learning right now. They probably are, but the, the physical school is still there and still in use. So early schools, before any government stepped in, early schools had the concept of socialization and taught literacy and arithmetic. So then you had schools in the South, and this is where um, primarily your planter class, so the people that owned the plantations or worked for plantations, not slaves, but I guess 
back then it would have been white people primarily, right? In the South, the planter class hired tutors and sent them to private schools or even up to New England for their education. In the elite class, they were able to homeschool their children um, while the poor attended schools set up by local parishes. So at first in the South, public schools were run and taught by ministers. And up until the early 20th century, the South was most, most um, children only attended school up till eighth grade because there was nothing else after that. Basically schooling stopped at eighth grade. And during our country's reconstruction era between 1863 and 1877 is when the Republican government decided establishing public schools based on general taxes. And so that is after the Civil War. The construction era was after the Civil War and was the time when the government figured out what to do with the 11 seceding rebel states. This also later led into civil rights movement that would end legal segregation in 1964-1965. So now, as we know it, our so-called public schools have been taxpayer and government funded for approximately 154 years. Public schools on a massive scale were set up by the government starting around 1866. So at first when public schools were set up, the most major cities had elementary schools and some secondary schools. And your secondary schools is gonna be your middle and high schools. In your rural areas, schools were only single room buildings for all the grades. Um, because, it, and this is crazy, this is so true, but this is written down, somebody did the research. Um, they had the single room buildings because it was thought rural, rural children, that's a tough one to say, they don't need an education because they're farmers by trade. And of course, this, is, this has been the way it's been since probably the beginning of time, but teachers were paid poorly, if at all. Now we get into our books. Um, because I was curious about like, okay, so we had teachers, we had publicly or, or taxpayer funded schools. What were they reading? Our early textbooks were imported from England. So that's not a surprise there, right? It probably took us a while to create our own text. Early books were then printed by Webster. So those were our more Americanized books. They broke down lessons in a progressive fashion that young children could learn and follow along and the lessons progressed by age. So the books started with the alphabet, then they covered sounds, then they covered consonants, syllables, simple words, then complex words, and then sentences. And by the end of the book, it contained two pages of important dates in American history. So you kind of had a um, timeline at the back of the book. It began with Columbus discovering America and ending with the Battle of Yorktown. And if you heard my podcast about Columbus and Indigenous Peoples Day, um, Columbus Day was actually recognized in lieu of 11 Italians being um, lynched. So we were apologizing to the country of Italy and that's the sole reason why we celebrated Columbus Day or why it became a, um, a holiday. The books that the children read excluded God. And so this is like the first time ever that children um, that were not part of a private school, that were part of a public school, it excluded God. 
the Bible or any sacred event. At the time when those books were written and given to children, the author's goals of his publications was to improve citizens' manners and preserve Republican purity and social stability. So this is uh, schools when they first started, um, sounds like it was more of a community event um, if you weren't homeschooling your children. And when, you know, we had child labor laws, um, I don't know the year that that took place, but we had child labor laws. And so that's another reason too, why public schools were created to get children out of the factories and into um, a schoolroom. It was more appropriate to have your children learning um, reading and arithmetic than um, hammering a hammer. So in comes the woman. So I'm gonna read this and then we'll take a quick break. So by the early 19th century, women were taking part in teaching. So women were not the originators of teaching. Um, it was kind of a man's world, but it was noticed that women were seen as concerned observers of young children and were best suited to teach children. And we've learned, um, I learned this um you've probably heard this before that women are best suited for nurturing. I can say that one of my favorite teachers of all times, I think he taught my brother too as well. One of my brothers, I have three. Um, he was a fifth grade teacher and it was a man and he was amazing. He was, he had been in the army before becoming a teacher and, um, yeah, his teaching style was amazing. He always had um, students come and visit his classroom that had been alumni. And um, But yes, as studies show, women are typically best suited to teach children. The term thrown around in the 18th century was Republican motherhood. And that is the idea that Patriot's daughters should be raised to uphold the ideals of Republicanism. So now we have the basic history. Our public schools have been government, governmentalized. Is that how you say that? They've been a government institution for about 154 years, but they've been in place longer than that. And as we are going to learn in a minute, the government is just soaking their fingers in more and more to our quote unquote public schools. So we'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to the adventures of living with Michelle. This is episode number 21 about public schools or is it government schools? So here we just spoke about, um, the inception of public schooling and then the inception or the introduction of the government um, wanting to be a part of it. I don't entirely disagree with, um, you know, we all pay our taxes. Homeowners have um, their tax dollars. Some of their tax dollars come out to their local public school Beyond that, um, we'll dive into this later, but schools do get money federally. School Public schools also get money um, from 
state governments. And then beyond that, if the school needs more money, you have your fundraisers going on. So, and I, this is the one thing that I didn't research and I, maybe I'll talk about it on another episode, but like how much money does it cost to, to run a school? And, you know, as far as the government stepping in, um, you know, what does that look like? So here we have our political side of it. We're going to dive into the politics of education. So we have what's called the Department of Education that was established in 1867. And it was created to collect information on schools and teaching that would help establish effective schools. So they probably did surveys and asked questions initially. Um, so these are the following acts that have been passed in our country where the more, I, I would say the more an act is passed, the more taxes are taken out and potentially more government money is given to schooling rather than private sectors. So in 1890, we had our land grant colleges and universities. 1917 is when federal aid to schools began. In 1941, so there wasn't any acts for a while, the expansion of federal support in education. In 1946, the schools were doing their, um, their reading and arithmetic, but they were also focusing on agricultural, industrial, home economics training in high schools. And I think that's something that's kind of going away. I took home ec in high school um, and I would assume they still have it, but there's a lot of classes that are like your trade type classes that are no longer offered in high schools. In 1944, we had the GI Bill. Um, that's, that's a great thing, right? I've known some people that have bought houses with that. In 1950, um, we had the impact aid, so it helped ease the burden on communities affected by the presence of military, federal installations by making payments to school districts. So if you notice the timeline, that's after World War II, um, you know, there, there was a lot of military stuff going on in our country back in those times. Oh, what different times it was. Uh, 1958, the National Defense Education Act was a highly trained officials. They they were seeking, 1958, they were seeking highly trained officials to help NASA. So they probably, I could only imagine, um, they probably recruited, you know, your high school juniors or seniors um, to come work for NASA and help NASA out because um, the space race was on, right? 1964, we had our Civil Rights Act. 1965, there was new programs established for poor or underprivileged children. 1972 and 73 was the end of discrimination in public schools based on race, sex, and disability, which is amazing. That's right before I was born um, that that took place. And as far as I'm concerned, um, I haven't seen a more well there is a more recent act that I'll talk about later but since 1980 there hasn't been any thing since 2015 the department of education in 1980 the department of education is added as part of the cabinet level agency in congress so 
I believe I might get this wrong because I did take government, but I want to say there's 11 cabinets, but there might be more or less. I could be wrong about that. So the mission of the Department of Education is to promote student achievement and preparation for global competitiveness by fostering educational excellence and ensuring equal access. And the Department of Education is also the third largest agency behind the Department of Defense, Department of Health and Human Services. So that means that they are the third largest cabinet by, by money. That's basically what that means. And the statement about their mission, promoting student achievement and preparation for global competitiveness. In one of my classes, um, we read an article and somebody basically broke that down and I kind of go with it. And it's true that when you have a graduating senior the intent of that person going to public school from kindergarten through 11, 12th grade, wow, <laughs> um, is to become a good citizen, to teach them to be a good citizen and to become a taxpayer. That's, that's the goals of our public school. If you break it down into its most rudimentary form, we have now, um, Creativity is out the door, and I'll get into this in a little bit, but we basically focus our public school education on test scores, and that is not entirely a good thing. So our public schools are overseen by our State Department of Education, and this is when the standardized testing comes into play. So. I'm going to take another quick little break and we will come back and talk about our standardized testing and go from there. All right. Welcome back to the Adventures of Living. So in comes, we're talking about public schools, in enters the standardized testing. And this is the part of the public schools that I don't agree with. And um, I feel like it's only getting worse. So our first standardized testing was introduced in 1929 and it was manually graded. So they probably were filling out maybe bubble paper um, or uh, even just answering questions, writing them out. 1936, a scanner was then invented and used to grade the testing. 1959 is when the ACT, American College Testing, started and that's similar to the SAT. And in 1965, Elementary and Secondary Act was passed and gave way for increased testing. So I am sure in my stint in public school um, that I took standardized tests. I feel like though, I mean, I'm not a great test taker and I probably would stress out about a test being having to be taken. But I don't feel like I was never put in any special classes. Um, I feel like I just did subpar through public school. Um, no great achievements. But I don't remember taking the standardized testing. They weren't traumatic, but they've changed. I feel like after I graduated high school, 
or even while I was in high school, um, maybe the elementary kids were starting to be given more um, standardized tests. With the invention of the computer, now, when I was in high school, we just had Macintosh computers, and we were given them to learn how to type. Um, we played Oregon Trail on them. <laughs> Very rudimentary programming. Um, but I believe that with the introduction of computers in the schools, I believe that's probably when we saw a great influx in standardized testing because it's easier now the the teachers have easier access. There's companies that are making these testing um, programs. So the the idea of the standardized test is to measure for success. And that's holding the teachers and students accountable. In 2001, so this is the most recent act, 2001 and 2015, implemented by the Bush administration is no child left behind. And this actually does put a stipulation on school funding based on standardized test scores. So in 2001, that is when your public schools probably changed their curriculum in order to bump up test scores. So now you're teaching your children how to take a test. And I know, I, I see my daughter was in kindergarten and now she's in first grade and you don't hear it. It's all subliminal stuff. Like they're teaching them math and they're teaching them reading, but they also have to do a program on the computer 45 minutes a week to complete lessons that eventually they will be tested on, on that same program. And this is a first grader. So there goes your, um, your creativity. Our, um, in 2015, the No Child Left Behind was replaced by the Obama administration, and it's called Every Student Succeeds Act. And this is requiring those testing to start at grade three, and they go through um, eighth grade. And I want to say, I don't know if any of my high schoolers out there know, I don't know what kind of testing the high schoolers do, but this is giving um, more state authority on the testing and um, they are changing and, and trying to lower proficiency targets. So um, this is kind of, I feel this is where our public schools have gone wrong because we are teaching our children to take tests and as a whole, when we see those test scores coming in low, that means your school is not going to get money or your school district. So then we lower the, the testing. Um, I guess you could say they dumb it down a little bit. And I'll get into that later as far as um, comparing our test scores to the world's test scores. So again, going back to the Department of Education, everybody knows this name. It's headed by Betsy DeVos, and I did some digging on her. Now, she, if you go to the Department of Education, she is a fairy godmother. She is a princess. She is a saint, of course. That Her profile on there 
is just nothing but butterflies and rainbows. But I did some digging on her and um, she has been part of some fraudulent schemes and she's not the inventor of these schemes, but she's a financial supporter of these schemes. One of them um, was the company Theranos. That company is actually headed by Elizabeth Holmes. So her and her husband, Betsy DeVos, are one of the biggest supporters or was one of the biggest supporters of that fraudulent blood draw company. And it was kind of a cool invention. Um, this Elizabeth Holmes lady had the invention or the foresight to, to put in like your Walgreen drugstores, little blood draw machines that the pharmacist could use to figure out things like allergies, blood type, if there's any diseases. Um, but it never worked the the computer it, or the device never never worked and they ended up i think people were saying that the customer and you would get the you're supposed to get the results like right that day but the customer they would go in and get their blood drawn and the walgreens didn't really have the computer or the machine and it would get mailed via like fedex to some lab so it was a scheme it was the elizabeth holmes lady she did get in trouble for um, this invention. But anyways, Betsy DeVos, our Department of Education head, um, there she's a big financial supporter of that. She's also, well, along with her husband, a big financial supporter of a company called Neurocor. And I'm going to spell it for you. N-E-U-R-O-C-O-R-E. This is a crazy one. This one shows movies to people with depression ADD, autism, and anxiety, and it interrupts the movie if they become distracted. Now, beyond that, I don't know what else the study does, but they are being sued by the Food and Drug Administration for using non-approved therapy methods. So, I mean, I'm not going to relate it to shock therapy, but it's shocking. <laughs> this is, and again, this is headed, this is, this is our Betsy DeVos Department of Education um, she supports school choice, so that's a scholarship tax credit program, credit to donating to nonprofits that grant private school scholarships. She's also a supporter of school vouchers, which I'll talk about that more later. And she's also a supporter of charter schools, which are public schools that are government funded, but not government run. I need to do a podcast on just about um, charter schools because I'm interested in them, but I'm leery of them too as well. So on the Department of Education, her bio says that she supports and is passionate about reforms that help underserved children help them gain access to quality education. So isn't she peachy? I'm sure she's a fine, outstanding citizen, but she doesn't seem to be, she's, she doesn't come from the public school background. Um, I don't know if her children went to public school. She herself went, attended only private schools. Um, and it sounds like she secretly supports private schools. And I'll get into that more later. So I don't think she's the best leadership at this time for public schools. So in jumps the CDC and schools. Um, we, I haven't really discussed much about this, but um, before COVID, was an issue with our public schools, with our public sector. Um, 
all children, the CDC really just said that all children that attending schools must be vaccinated. That's a whole nother podcast, right? Um, or they have to have a religious or health exemption. In our state where I live, in Washington state, there are no longer exemptions. So every child going to public school must have their vaccinations up to record. And then we turn to um, the CDC kind of is partnered with this, the eligibility in our state for special education. And I'm going to talk about this because I posted a notation on social media and I'm like, people, tell me about your experience with public school. I want to know what's going on. So I had a friend reach out that has a child that when you read the information that she gave me, I would put that child in a special education class. I would put that child in a class where there is a trained teacher that can help that child um, learn and um, not be disruptive to their class. So in order to qualify for special education in our country, um, you must have at least one disability, if not more, and the, the disability must adversely affect your educational performance. And there needs to be um, unable to be, oh, the needs are unable to be addressed in general education classes with or without individual accommodations. So, in order to find out if your child qualifies for special education, assessments are done by the school districts. A medical diagnosis is not required in my state. So in the state of Washington, um, they can ask you for one. They can ask you to have your doctor write a note or do an assessment, but it's not required by law. Um, but the district can request one as a parent or guardian. Um, and it would include a medical statement. So a variety of data is considered, not just one evaluation. So if you feel like you have a child that should be in a special needs class and you've been denied that, um, these are the following things for Washington. This is under Washington public instruction. One or more needs is not met. So this is oral expression. And this is your child underperforming in these in these fields. Their oral expression is poor, listening comprehension, comprehension, written expression, basic reading, reading fluency, reading comprehension, math calculation, and math problem solving. So it's one or more. And you know the other um the disabilities are not able to come from these following things. So in order to qualify for special education in Washington state, your disabilities cannot be a visual hearing or motor disability, intellectual disability, emotional or behavioral disability, cultural factors, environmental, environmental or economic disadvantage, or limited in English. Now, I believe that if you were to place children that fall under those categories, definitely you would see an influx, an increase in our special education classrooms. But when you have a child that is diagnosed with ADHD, 
ODD, separation anxiety, and DMDD. And they're violently acting out and you put them in with the regular population, you know, I mean, if they're functioning, if their school work is functioning appropriately, it's tough to get that child into a special education class. But if they're having problems with oral expression, listening comprehension, written expression, basic reading, reading fluency, reading comprehension, math calculation or math problem solving, any one of those things, that's going to put them in a special education class. So if you're thinking that your child needs to be in special needs, but they don't qualify in Washington state, you have to bring the dispute up with your IEP team. You have to have mediation and then you have to file a complaint and request a hearing. So it's a lot of work in our state. Um, but now also too, the CDC is giving us, um, they're, they're, they're involved in our, in our schooling now, never the way they were before because of, um, because of the COVID-19 virus. So back to our special needs really quick. I'm going to finish this up and then we'll take another break. So in the 2017-18 school year, the average enrolled children that were in special need classes within public schools was 13.7%. That's countrywide. That's the United States. The lowest enrollment is in Texas and the highest enrollment is in New York. And research shows that school districts are actually under identifying students that actually qualify for special needs class because of their disabilities. So if you think that your child is applicable, do your research and contact the people. But I feel like um, when I read that statement that school districts are actually under identifying students, that maybe the people that you could be talking to in your district, they don't know. They they are not qualified to make that proper assessment. And so I would definitely have a mediation about it. So we will be right back. I believe I have um, one or two more breaks in this episode. This is a long one. Um, I'm very passionate about public schooling, as you should be too, even if your child doesn't attend public school. So we will be right back. All right. Welcome back to the Adventures of Living. So we're talking about public schools and now I am talking about how the CDC has now put their skin in the game because of COVID. So along with the Department of Education, the CDC has teamed up to run schools now. So the CDC gives us health guidance on what numbers should look like to return to school. Um, things like wearing masks and they've left the final decisions up to state governors state superintendents and local board members on who returns. Um, we have been given in our local school district, we have been given surveys on what, what it should look like to go back to school. We did a survey over the summer with our school district on what curriculum should look like. And when they came back, they came back with a full schedule and this is remote learning that they're talking about. And they wanted, they, they made it look like the kids were going to be sitting at the computer for an eight hour time period doing schoolwork with, you know, parent assistance. 
And they came back and they said that this is what everybody concluded on their survey. And I was like, I didn't fill my survey out like that. So it'll be interesting to see what the CDC is going to say for our um, school returning in our state. Washington state is, there, there are some schools within our county even that are starting to go back. Um, they're, they're having kids go back um, maybe half the class at a time for your elementary school students. With remote learning as parents, you have to realize that your children will not be allowed to fail while they're in remote learning. If your children fail in school, then it shows that teachers are not needed. And we need our teachers. I think teachers are a great resource to help children learn their reading and their arithmetic. Teachers can help with social socialization. So now we're looking at, um, I'm going to talk about the basic rules and this is for Washington State. These are the basic rules um, that children in our school districts need to abide by in order to pass school. And this is this is regarding curriculum. So in in my state, and this this might be very similar to your state. I'm sure maybe all the states are are the same. So the student must take the Washington State history in twelfth grade unless they're from out of state. So there's probably some kind of test that you take. Um, but if you have recently moved from another state, you don't have to take that because you've been learning in your public school in Washington state, you've been learning all about Washington state history up until 12th grade, you get tested on it. Um, then you must learn the Washington state constitution and learn the history, including culture, history, government, and, um, the culture and history of the American Indians. You have to take social studies, arts, health, and fitness. You have to take civics. The flag has to be displayed, the U.S. flag, and you have to say the Pledge of Allegiance each day, or you can stand in silence. So if you don't know the Pledge of Allegiance or you don't believe you want to say it, then you are allowed to stand in silence. And then the national anthem must be sung at inter-school events. So if you do your football games or any kind of um, events where you're involved with another school. You have to sing the national anthem. This is something I found interesting. Temperance and Good Citizenship Day is a, it's a civic observance um, that in our state, we take a day off for that. And I want to say that last year it was scheduled on like January 16th and maybe it's always January 16th. Um, obviously if it falls on a Saturday, then the following Monday, um, is the day that you would take off. And in our state, we observe that, but it's always following on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So it's kind of a weird holiday that we observe in our state. Um, but it's related to schools. Veterans Day has to be observed. Again, you have to study the Washington state constitution in order to graduate. You have to take um, civil rights education and Washington Civil Liberties Public Education Program. This is um, specifically covering World War II and our Japanese incarceration. So if people don't know that or haven't learned about it because you're from a different state, during World War II, anybody that was of Japanese descendant, we put them in um, 
in internment camps or incarceration camps um, because we thought, because we were at war with Japan, because Japan bombed us, we thought that all Japanese people were spies. So <laughs> you have to learn about that in our state. And then for our under, for our elementary school kids, they have to do 45 minutes. Oh, this is recommended, excuse me. But it's recommended that they do 45 minutes per week of the iReady program, which equals about two lessons a week. And in my opinion, that just helps them prepare for their testing. So we're going to talk about now, how can you make any of these things that I've described? How can you change any of them with as much government overreach that there is in our schooling? Um, what can you do to change it? And it's actually very difficult. So you can join your local school board and that's somebody that's you have to be voted in. Um, the school board gets to decide on who the superintendent is. They get to vote to approve budgets. They get to vote to approve textbooks. They get to make decisions on school openings and closings. And then your state superintendent or your local superintendent, they answer to the board, they implement policies, and they, re they make recommendations. So if you feel like you are fed up with your public school system and you really want to make a difference, um, you know, you can attend board meetings, you can ask questions, you can volunteer, get involved with local schools, vote and hold the board accountable. So you've seen it before with, with whatever issue is arising in your city, your board meetings are public. They, you can attend them as a public citizen. You can attend them as a private business owner. Um, if there's something that you don't like, and unfortunately, I feel like you really have to be higher up on that board to actually make and have those changes implemented. Um, we see that the standardized testing is becoming the norm and they're just going to lower the child's ability to learn so the schools can get more money, um, which is going to make us overall... I don't know. Our, our nation is going downhill with education. And this is, this is something, excuse me, that I find interesting on usnews.com, our education ranking. Um, and this is by GDP. United States is number one. United Kingdom is number two and Canada is number three. So United States, we spend the most money out of any country on our schools. And this is on I believe this is primarily on our public schools. We spend $20.5 trillion of our money, if we even have it, <laughs> on our school's education. But now if you look at our ranking and test scores. So the tests that we take are comparable to tests offered in other countries. And there is a ranking system. It's PISA. Program for International Student Assessment, and this is combining math, science, and reading. Number one is China. This is from 2018, and these are again these are test scores. The the and these are the same test scores that our schools use to see how much um, federal aid and how much state aid public schools get. 
Number one is China. Number two is Singapore. Number three is Macau. Number four is Hong Kong. And number five is Estonia. That's over by Finland. Number 25 is United States. So this was two years ago. And I feel like every year we either stay in that area or we get our, our scores are worse and worse. So, I mean, what can we do about it? As teachers, I feel like, unfortunately, the creativity is going away and they're teaching for test scores. You... Your children in your classroom will take a test eventually and they will come back with the final test score. And if they are poor or underperforming, that can impact your direct job. Or that can impact the money that you receive from state funding or even federal funding. So what do you do for the school year? You're going to teach them how to take a test. Now, in Washington state, we have a referendum coming up um, on the ballot. It's referendum 90, and it's going to, it's called sex education in public schools, and it's going to change the way they teach sex ed. Um, I believe when I was in elementary school, in like third or fourth grade, we were separated, and we separated by boys and girls, and they taught us about body parts. And the girls, we touched base on male body parts, but really got into female body parts because it was about ourselves. That was it for that. And then in high school, in like 10th or 11th grade, maybe even ninth grade, they did sex education. And it was in our part of our health class. Um, and it was just a segment. It was just a brief, you know, maybe we spent a couple weeks on it like protection and pregnancy and STDs, all that kind of stuff. So this referendum is going to be more comprehensive sexual education between our sixth and 12th graders. Um, kindergarten through third grade, it would be more social emotional learning. And I'm, I don't know. I mean, this is more um, government reach into your home teaching your children um, sexual education. You're relying on the government to do that for you. So, I mean, vote how you see fit, right? Um, and then in our state, Washington state, our um, superintendent is running for re-election and the person that is running against him, they support school vouchers. And so I was going to tell you about school vouchers. Our Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, also supports school vouchers. And this is interesting. So this is for your private school people. School vouchers reimburse a parent who chooses to put their child in private school the money it would have cost them to go to public school. So if you think of what the cost is to have your child attend public school, because there is a fee to that. There is a, a price you can put on that for the school year. Whatever that price would have been if they went to their local school, their local public school, but now you choose to enroll them in a private school. So you are paying for your tuition of your child to go to private school. But if you have a school voucher 
your school, not you, it doesn't go back into your pocketbook from the government, the government will reimburse that private school, that dollar amount. So now you have government money in your private school. And eventually if those school vouchers catch on, eventually your government is going to start choosing the curriculum for your private school. So a lot of private schools might be Christian based. Um, they're teaching religious aspects of the Bible. Um, but now if you have your government giving school vouchers and say your school is doing that, your private school, and maybe they accept X amount of dollars, that could give the government their skin in the game to your private school. And I don't know if that makes it a private school anymore. I don't know if you should even be allowed to call a public school a public school anymore with as much government money that they're receiving. It makes you feel good as a citizen, though, doesn't it? That you have a child attending a public school and you feel like they're that you as a parent might have a say in, in their education. So a lot of the reason why I did this podcast is because, again, I'm going to school for my paraeducator certificate. But I also have a child in public school and she is currently at home doing remote learning and I get to hear the teachers and, you know, I could do episodes on what I feel are her teacher's skills, um, how the, how the classes are being handled. I'm thankful that we are able to do the remote learning. I do wish that she was in school. I am deathly afraid of COVID-19. So yeah, it's a stressful time for parents. And um, I'm really glad that you listened to my episode on the Adventures of Living episode 21. If you have any feedback, I have voicemail now. So you can literally click on the Anchor podcast um, go to the adventures of living and you can leave me a voice message. And, um, maybe if it's something that I like, I'll play it on my next episode, but I have to go. And I would just like to say, thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm sure I left out a lot of information. Hopefully I was accurate about the information that I provided, but please be kind to your future self.